You are listening to Sermon Audio from Faith and Church. If you have any questions about God, faith, or our church, email us at info at dayfreechurch.com. And for more information, find us on the web at dayfreechurch.com. Good morning. Before we get into the uh, message, I would be really remiss if I did not do this. Because anything I think, anytime I think we are praying for something, and uh, and you know we'll make a prayer focus, but then when God answers, uh, then we don't give Him the credit we ought to give Him. Uh, many times. Uh, <laughs> Today we have uh, Ashlyn Pope with us and her family, and. Uh, Ashley, if you don't—I'm not trying to make you embarrassed, but if you would stand because I, that's just an answer of God that she can stand and that she can walk after being in the car accident she was months ago. Guys, let's give God a hand. Uh, had you been in the hospital early on, you would know how huge of a prayer. Uh, that is that God uh, that God answers. <clears throat> We're doing a series called the Next Step, and uh, the idea, Kylie has followed along behind this phrase that we pop up at the end of our messages a lot at day three, because we put this up almost every week. What is the next step? Your next step toward God today, or what's the next step of your life? I think that's kind of a significant question for us to pose all the time because I don't think church ought to be something to where you you come and you go away without being challenged to take some kind of step in your life, without being willing to listen to God and say, what's the next step that you want me to take? We have a theme verse that we've been using in this series. matter of fact, two of them. You'll see the other one in, in just a second. It's in Ephesians. But in Galatians, we've been looking at this verse as our theme verse. The Bible says, since we live by the Spirit, that can be translated, since the Spirit has made us alive. In other words, the Holy Spirit makes us alive by convicting us of our sin, by showing us our need of a Savior, by giving us the faith that we need to say yes to Jesus. And the Bible tells us the Spirit keeps us sealed to the day of redemption. So because the Holy Spirit has made us alive, here's what we ought to do. It says, let us keep in step with the Spirit. That phrase, keep in step, in the Greek is a military term, and it referred to marching, an army marching, as someone would call out marching orders to those soldiers. So you might get a picture of that from, from that illustration that we ought to do this. We ought to allow the Holy Spirit to give us marching orders. And then we ought to listen to the Holy Spirit, and we ought to keep in step with what He wants us to do. The Holy Spirit ought to guide us in the decisions, the choices, the attitudes, the things we do in our life, we ought to allow the Holy Spirit to be giving us our, our marching orders. We've looked at this series. We've talked about the next step in your life as an individual. Last week, we talked about the next step in your family's life because it was Mother's Day. And, and guys, there's a lot of stuff in the Bible, uh, huge stuff in the Bible about the family relationship. And uh, one big thing that you can do to improve your family relationship is look in Galatians 5 and look at the fruits of the Spirit and just ask yourself, 
what do we need of those bigger in our family's life? Today what we're going to talk about is this. We're going to talk about the next step of his life, referring to Jesus, referring to God, the next step of his life in your life. Now the pretense to that is this. You've received Christ as your Savior. You know your sins have been forgiven because you've trusted in Jesus. You know you're on your way to heaven. So what else is there that Jesus wants to be doing in your life? He's already made the first step of salvation. And if that's not true for you today, that is your first step. And I'll give you a verse in a minute that can help greatly with that. But for those of us that already know Christ, He has other steps that He wants to take in our lives. Really about discipleship, and I'll talk more about that in a moment. Here's our other theme verse we've been using in this series, Passage. In Ephesians 2, 8, 9, it says, For it's by grace you've been saved. The reason I'm using this verse to go along with our messages in Galatians is because Galatians is a book about salvation being by grace. That's the main theme of Galatians. Here, Paul, the same one that was used and inspired of God to write Galatians, writes this in Ephesians. It's by grace you've been saved, by the unmerited favor of God. You can't earn it. You can't deserve it. It's by God's grace you've been saved through faith. That's faith in Jesus Christ, His finished work on the cross. And this not from yourselves. It's a gift of God. He gives you the ability to believe in Jesus. And by His grace, you're saved. Not by works. Salvation's a gift. It's not by works because if it were by works, we would do what? Boast about it. So salvation is completely by faith in the finished work of Jesus on the cross. And God, by His amazing grace, His unmerited favor, saves us. So if you don't know Christ as your Savior, I want to tell you something up front. You cannot work your way to heaven. You can't be good enough to go to heaven. That's why Jesus went to the cross. And your only hope today is just to believe in Him and to trust in Him. But the message that we're actually dealing with today is going to talk about discipleship. The background to Galatians, there were some new Christians in Galatia. And they are being influenced by people who have these legalistic ideas. In other words, yes, you believe in Jesus, but then you have to do this, you have to do that, you have to do this, and you have to do that in order to really be right with God. That's why God inspired Paul to write this book to the believers at Galatia to show and help them understand that their salvation is by grace, not by the works, not by a bunch of legalism but I completely trusted in Jesus Christ as Savior. The theme today, as I say, is discipleship, discipleship. Now, let me stop before I even give you the definition of discipleship, because for some of you, that scares you. For some of you, it bores you. <laughs> it scares some of you, because when you think about discipleship, you're a little bit whacked out with the thought of you becoming more like Jesus and how that happens. Or the other side of discipleship is this. God actually wants to use you, and we'll talk about that in the message today. God wants to use you to help disciple the lives of other people. And that might flip you out because you're just really nervous when you start thinking about how can I impact somebody else for Jesus. So it might scare you to think about discipleship. And for some of you, you're bored to think about discipleship because your instant idea when I mention discipleship is the old Baptist training union. And, and that's where on Sunday evening, after you've had a long, hard day doing everything else, you go to church, they put you in a room, 
with some old dude who sits there and reads you out of a quarterly uh, in a monotone voice, and you're thinking to yourself, I could stay at home and done that. See, some people, discipleship is boring because they've got the wrong concept of it. Can I tell you what discipleship means? The word itself means to be a follower, a learner, or a pupil of Jesus. It means a person is professing to have learned some principles from another, and in this situation, we're talking about Jesus, and maintains or keeps those principles based upon the other person's authority. So for us, being disciples of Jesus means this. We've learned things from Jesus. We're doing them because He's God in the flesh. We're doing it because of His authority. Now here's why I'm telling you, discipleship should not be boring. And you shouldn't get bored or worried thinking about discipleship. To be a follower of Jesus Christ. Do you remember who Jesus is? God in the flesh. Now, guys, I don't know, but it sounds like that would be a pretty cool thing to do to be able to follow God in the flesh. It also means this, to be a learner or a pupil of Jesus. I mean, my goodness, if you're going to learn something from someone and you can learn something from the God of all the universe, to me that sounds like it ought to be an exciting thrill ride instead of something you're worried about or something you think is just a lot of boring stuff because here's what's happening. Discipleship is really Jesus taking the next step of his life in your life and you becoming more like Jesus, and that ought to pump us up to think we can actually become more like Christ. So that's what we're going to talk about today. We're going to talk about discipleship. And as we do so, I want us to kind of ask ourselves some really probably hard questions uh, about discipleship, about how it's taking place in our own lives. Here's question number one. Whose life is impacting my life? I could have called the message today questions because I'm going to ask this question and a number two main question and then everything else is questions that I'm asking. And we're just trying to answer these questions. Whose life is impacting my life? In other words, what is the major influence in your life today? Is your life influenced more than more by television than it is by Jesus? Is your life being influenced more by peer pressure than it is by Jesus? Is your life being influenced more by maybe your own temptation and simple desires that you have than your life is being influenced by Jesus? Whose life is really impacting your life? Who are you allowing to influence your choices in the way you live out your life? Now, having said that, we're going to ask a couple of other questions. First of all, am I being impacted or influenced by legalistic people? By legalistic people. See, that was why Paul was writing. There are these guys called the Judaizers. And the Judaizers were trying to bring things of the Jewish religion and add it into Christianity. And these Judaizers were telling these new believers in Galatia that, yeah, you believe in Jesus, but you have to be circumcised, but you have to do this, but you have to do that, but you have to do this. It would be almost like today, in our day, someone telling you, uh, in order to be saved, you believe in Jesus, but then you have to obey all of the Ten Commandments. Or you have to believe in Jesus and then you have to live a really good life in order to go to heaven. See, that's what they were wrestling with. They had some people who were being very legalistic toward them. The Bible says this, You were running a good race. Who cut in on you and kept you from obeying the truth? What kind of persuasion or that kind of persuasion does not come from the one who calls you? And then it says a little yeast 
works through the whole batch of dough. I'm confident in the Lord that you will take no other view. Let's break that down a minute and look at what's said in those verses. Now, before I do it, I want to qualify something. Here's the first part of the qualification. You are not saved by good works, as I said a moment ago. You're not saved on your own merit. You're only saved by faith in Jesus. Flip side of that coin, once you are saved, God expects you to serve Him. Not in order that you can be saved, but because you're saved. You ought to be allowing Him to influence your life so you are serving Him and doing what He would like for you to do. Living your life for Him instead of living your life for someone else. So ask yourself, are you being influenced by something other than Jesus? In particular right now, let's talk about this. Are you being influenced by legalistic people? Now that never happens, does it? Have you ever had anyone come and kindly spoil the joy that you have in Jesus and say, yeah, if you're a real Christian, you'd be doing this or you'd be doing that? Now, guys, here's the thing with legalism. Legalism is a bunch of man-made rules. I'm not talking about what God clearly says in His Word that we're supposed to do, that we're supposed to be about. Legalism is where some men, kind of like the Pharisees would do, start making up their own rules and telling you you have to jump through their hoops. You have to obey their man-made rules. That's what happened to these believers at Galatia. Paul tells them, you are running a good race. Paul's not being down on these Galatian believers. He's saying, look, you, you have faith in Jesus. You're actually doing something. You're running a race. You're not just sitting around wasting your life. You're really running a race for Christ. And then he says, who cut in on you and kept you from obeying the truth? What Paul has in mind here is uh, the image of someone running a race, a track race. A lot of times in Paul's writings, he will talk about uh, Olympic-type games or sporting events and use it for an illustration. Here Paul gives us the idea of a race taking place, and as this race is taking place, somebody cuts in on another runner, maybe elbows them, pushes them, causes them to stumble, causes them to go out of bounds, causes them to fall down, but by the fact of another runner cutting in front of them, it hinders their progress, and they can't run as fast as they were running because someone has cut in front of them and kind of bumped them aside. I actually saw that uh, happen. I know about it happening one time when uh, Jared was running. We did a series uh, a couple years ago that uh, kind of focused on running a race, and uh, Jared was running cross country, uh, my son. And uh, as he was running uh, this particular race, there's this, uh, Jerry said, kind of little dude, you know, that came up and kept kind of pushing in front of him and things like that and throwing an elbow and things trying to get by him. And, you know, I'm thinking, well, little dude, Jerry's kind of tall, you know, why, why are you letting him do that? But uh, anyway, finally, Jerry gets fed up with the guy, you know, and the guy was even cussing at him and stuff while he ran. So Jared, instead of throwing an elbow back at him, just decides, I'm going to run off and leave you. And that's what he did. Now, you see, here's what we ought to do when you have legalistic people trying to cut off your freedom in Christ. They're trying to bump in front of you. They're trying to hinder your progress as you're trying to live for Jesus. Instead of you getting all tied up and bumping with them and trying to fight with them, you ought to just run ahead. You ought to just believe what Jesus has for your life and run ahead instead of letting someone with a bunch of legalistic rules cut you off and hinder you. Legalistic rules really do this. 
It's like putting chains, heavy chains around the ankle of someone that's running a race. It's like all of a sudden, you know, this guy comes up and puts these, you know, these, these big clasps around your ankles and a heavy chain, and now you're trying to run. How many think that would be fun? You know, you want to go run a race with like 20 pounds of chains around your ankles? You don't know what happens most of the time when that takes place. When, when, when a believer who has freedom in Christ is trying to serve Christ and some legalistic person comes with a lot of man-made rules that puts these heavy chains on their life and hinders their progress or impedes their progress, here's what people tend to do. They tend just to give up. And how can I run a race with all this weight on my ankles? How can I run this race with, with, with all this extra burden, with all this chain? that someone's put on me, all these legalistic rules. How, how can I run a race for Jesus? What you need to do is just run ahead. What you need to do is believe what Jesus has for you and just keep going and running the race. Paul says you're running a race good for Jesus, and then somebody come in and cut you off, and the people he's talking about are the Judaizers, and they were coming up with all these legalistic rules that was hindering the faith of these believers. And guys, that's what legalism will do to us. Legalism will slow us down and it will hinder our progress that we need to make for Jesus Christ. It's not fun to run with a bunch of chains on you. It's not fun as a Christian to try and serve Jesus when someone else keeps putting these man-made rules, man-made rules, man-made rules, man-made rules, and all it does is weigh you down and it makes you want to give up. Happens all the time with Christians because they get so burdened with the man-made rules they get so discouraged with their walk with their Christian life that they just decide what's the use I might as well stay home I might as well quit reading my Bible I might as well quit attending church what's the use of me trying to run for Jesus when the only thing I have is a bunch of man-made rules that keep people keep stacking on my life so who are you being influenced by we're talking about discipleship. Are you being influenced by legalists? If so, Paul gives a warning that we need to pay attention to. He said, first of all, that kind of persuasion does not come from the one who calls you. The one who calls you is Jesus. Jesus did not call us to trust in ourselves. He did not call us to trust in our own ability to obey rules. Jesus went to a cross and he died on the cross, and he took his life back up, so we had trust in him. Legalism does exactly the opposite. Legalism says, yes, Jesus died for me, but I have to trust in my own ability to do this, to do that, to do all this other stuff. That is not the way God wants us to live. He said that's not the persuasion that Christ gave you. Christ died for you, took his life back up, so you trust him, and quit trusting in yourself. And then look at the warning. A little yeast works through the whole batch of dough. How many of you ladies have ever made homemade bread? Wait a minute, is there anybody? Okay. <laughs> a dying breed. You want to know why? We've got all this canned stuff anymore. Let's take it, whack it on the counter, pop it open, put it in the oven. Lois Witt and Lois is out of town. I was going to have Lois to fix me up some because Lois will fix me some bread uh, from time to time, as you might can readily tell by looking at me. But uh, she'll make some sourdough bread, and she keeps you know something kind of ready all the time where she can make it. And what it is is just this you know base dough that she has. When you add yeast to it, 
that yeast starts to flood all through that bread dough, almost like a virus or something, and it makes it start to swell up and grow. And then after it gets, you know, to the certain point, you, you cook it, and you've got this really good mouth-watering, fluffy bread. I'm making you hungry, aren't I? But Paul has given us that as a warning because he's talking about legalism being like yeast. And if you're not careful, if you take a little bit of legalism and you put it in your life before you know it, it has spread like a virus in your life. And instead of you being this joyful, happy Christian that's loving and is concerned about other people, all of a sudden you've been transformed because the legalism has spread all through your body like yeast, all through your, your spirit and your mind and everything else. You become this very nasty, hateful, judging type of person. How many of you ever seen that happen to a Christian? You ever seen that happen? I mean, they, you know, they, they were interested in people, loving people, wanting to help people, wanting to do things for people, wanting to serve Jesus, big on Jesus, and all of a sudden, you know, somehow a little bit of legalism gets there, and it keeps growing, and it keeps growing, and first thing you know, that person is just hateful. All they do is judge people, condemn people, put people down. See, that's the warning that Paul's given about legalism. You don't need to allow your life to be impacted by legalism. Your life needs to be impacted by Jesus. If you allow your life to be impacted by legalism, it might start out as a few little man-made rules, but it will blow up in your life to where all of a sudden you're just this negative person that's down on everybody. It can happen to a church. If a church gets a group of people who all of a sudden just they're really negative and they're, and they're down on everybody and they're judging everybody because they've got all these rules they made up and no one's living up to the rules, so they start condemning each other. Before you know it, that legalism can spread like a virus within a body of believers. And instead of that church being interested in loving people and reaching people and growing, that church becomes settled with their few as long as their few are acting like they want their few to act, and if their few ever get to where they're not acting like they want them to act, then they don't even want them. Because they've allowed this legalism to invade them. Apply that to the gospel for a minute. The gospel is not about you and I having the ability to work our way to heaven, or you and I being good enough to go to heaven. The gospel is Jesus Christ, because we could not do it, doing it for us as he went to the cross and paid for all of our sins with his blood and by faith in him we have everlasting life if you take the gospel and you add a little bit of legalism in it it will begin to spread like a virus like yeast through the dough and before you know it the gospel message is destroyed because you have a bunch of legalistic rules here's the thing that's so bad about that you know how good that bread sounded a minute ago when I was talking about that homemade bread? I mean, can't you just see it right now, warm, you know, get you a little bit of butter and put on it and things, and, you know, just right out of the oven? The bad thing is legalism can become to where it looks like that for somebody, too, because they've started feeding upon legalism, and they like it, and that's their diet, and they start feeding on legalism. So who's impacting your life? Are you being impacted by legalistic people instead of being impacted by Jesus? Second question I want to ask you is this. Whose life am I living out in my life? 
Whose life am I living out in my life? Paul writes these words. You, my brothers, were called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge the sinful nature. Rather, serve one another in love. The entire law is summed up in a single commandment. Love your neighbor as yourself. If you keep on biting and devouring each other, watch out or you will be destroyed by each other. He said, you, my brothers, were called to be free. As Christians, we are set free from our sins. But we are not set free when we trust Christ to live however we want to live. And that's what people get messed up in their doctrine and in, their, in living out their lives in a practical way. In other words, people have this mindset, I've trusted in Jesus, I'm on my way to heaven, I'll just go do what I want to do. That's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible does not teach I am set free to sin. The Bible teaches I am set free to serve Jesus. I'm forgiven of my sins, so now I have the ability to serve Him. So he says you were called to be free, but not to use your freedom to indulge the sinful nature. Look what the word indulge means. A starting point. It was a word that was used to talk about a base camp for a military campaign or military operation. In other words, you're getting ready to go to war, so you have this base camp where you're going to send your army out from. It was also used to refer to a springboard. A springboard. See, here's the issue that Paul's bringing up. When we are saved, we are not saved to do anything we want to do. We are not saved to allow our lives to be like a, a military station. To where from that we can launch out all the sinful desires that we want to launch out. That's not what we're supposed to be doing with our lives that have been set free as Christians. He said it's not to be like a springboard. The uh, video that was going on before I came out to speak where uh, you know Adam was jumping on a springboard, jumping out into the water, giving us an idea of this next step that we're talking about in the series. We are not to use the freedom that we have in Christ as a springboard to jump on and jump out into sin. To jump out into living our life any way we want to. Because here's the deal with that. When you and I are indulging our sinful nature, you want to know whose life we're living out in our life? Not Jesus. If it's not Jesus, can I give you another guess who it might be? If we're living our lives based on sinful indulgence, we're living our life the way Satan wants us to live our lives. So who's influencing your life? That's the big question I'm asking this morning. Who is influencing your life? Who is impacting your life? A bunch of legalistic people? And whose life are you living out in your own life? Are you living out Satan's life? Or are you living out the life that Jesus wants you to live? Because here's what Jesus wants you to do. He wants your life to be a base camp to where he can work from. He wants your life to be a springboard into his future for you, not for you following Satan and sinful indulgences in your life. Look what else is said here. Back up, please. Last slide. Last slide. <laughs> Back up one more. There you go. I'm sorry, when I said, let's look at the next T, Vault, next slide. 
Um, he said, don't use your freedom to indulge in sinful nature. Rather, it says, serve one another in what? Love. He says, serve one another in what? You look worn out today, and there's no one any tired than I am today because I, you know, it was a prom day, and I followed my son and his girlfriend all over John's River making pictures and everything else. So I am worn out today. So I'm having to stay awake and do this. You stay awake and listen to what I'm saying. Amen? Instead of living your life to indulge in sinful nature, says serve one another in love. He says the entire law is summed up in a single command. Love your neighbor as yourself. If I'm going to live out the Jesus kind of life, our question is this, whose life am I living out in my life? It can either be the life Satan wants me to live as I indulge sinful temptations in my life, or I can be living out a life of love to where I'm serving other people, caring for other people. He says the single commandment, love your neighbor as yourself. That's the type of life Jesus wants us to be living. Not a life of legalism, not a life of where we are indulging the sinful nature. He wants us to live out this life that is His life through us. Love your neighbor as yourself. You notice there that He doesn't say you're following Jesus by obeying man-made rules, by judging people, by looking down on people, by condemning people. He said that what we need to do is serve one another in love and the entire law is summed up in that command. How can he say all the laws summed up in that one command, love your neighbors yourself? Here's, the, here's how that works. If I really love my neighbor, I don't want to break in his house and steal from him. If I really love my neighbor, I don't want to lust after his wife. If I really love my neighbor, I'm not going to gossip and bear false witness against him. See how it works out? If you really love your neighbor, then that's helping you fulfill the law because out of love, you're treating your neighbor as you should treat them. But the big picture, guys, I want you to get it simply this. You're either living out Satan's life or you're living out the life that Jesus wants you to live. There's a warning here in the Scriptures about living out the wrong kind of life. Look at Galatians chapter 6, verse 7 and 8. Do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. The one who sows to please his sinful nature from that nature will reap destruction. The one who sows to please the Spirit from that Spirit will reap eternal life. I've got a choice. I can live out Satan's life through my life. I can live out Jesus' life through my life. Discipleship is me letting him live his life through me. Verse 14 said, Love your neighbor as yourself. Look what Jesus gave us as an indication of what discipleship's really about. Look in John. Move ahead, please. A new command I give you. Jesus is speaking to the disciples. He says, love one another. Now, we might be pretty cool with that and think, oh, yeah, we can do that. But notice what else Jesus said. Love one another as I have loved you. Wow. How did Jesus love us? Sacrificially. He went to a cross. He was nailed to a cross for us. A sign of discipleship is this. Jesus said, this new command I give you, love one another as I've loved you. You must love one another by this. This is an indicator of discipleship. By this, for other people to see and know we're his disciples. By this, all men will know you're my disciples if 
you love one another. What is a sign that we really belong to Jesus? Is it a sign that we really belong to Jesus if we get a big Bible and we carry it to church and we go to church and take our big Bible home and lay it down and don't touch it the rest of the week? Or is it a sign that we're the disciples of Jesus that we love each other as we should? That other people see us loving other people and impacting the lives of other people. Jesus said that's the sign that we're his disciples. Galatians 6 tells us this. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision has any value. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. What were they arguing about? Circumcision. The Judaizers were telling these new believers in Galatia, yeah, you trusted in Christ, but guess what? you got to be circumcised to be right with God. What does Paul say? He's saying that don't matter. He's saying uncircumcision doesn't matter. He's saying the thing that we need to focus on is this. The only thing that really counts is faith expressing itself through love. Because the faith that we have in Jesus, that ought to affect our lives to where we're living out His life in our lives. That's why I ask you, whose life are you living out in your life? Look where legalism leads, and then we'll move to our second main point. Here's where legalism leads if you allow legalism to be the thing that's impacting your life, influencing your life. He said, you, my brothers, were called to be free. And then he comes on down after he talks about the entire law being summed up in love. And then the very last verse, he says this in verse 15. If you keep on biting and devouring each other, watch out, or you will be destroyed or consumed by each other. That's where legalism ultimately goes. Here's why. People that are motivated by legalism, churches that are motivated by legalism, since they have all these man-made rules, they are looking at each other to see if they're keeping the rules. And if they're not keeping the rules and someone's falling down and keeping the rules, guess what happens? They start talking about each other. They start talking about someone that has fallen, someone that is breaking the rules. He said, if you keep on biting and devouring each other, if you keep on putting each other down, if you keep on gossiping about each other, he says, watch out or you will be consumed by each other. Guys, that's where legalism goes. And I have seen it happen to a group of believers. If you let legalism run rampant within a group of believers, before long they are cutting each other, gossiping about each other, biting on each other, teeth marks on each other, because they are looking at legalism. But if I'm looking at love, that means I'm trying to help you, I'm trying to love you through whatever you're going through. I'm trying to help you get better. We're talking about discipleship. We need to be discipling other people, helping them get better. Second big question. First big question was this. Whose life is influencing your life? Here's our second big question. Whose life am I impacting for Jesus? Part of discipleship is what we allow to impact our lives. Am I following Jesus? Am I being a follower of Jesus, a pupil of Jesus? That's the front end of discipleship. But there's more to discipleship than that because Jesus wants to use our lives to impact the lives of other people for Him. Discipleship isn't about this, guys. Discipleship isn't about Jesus helping us so we get to the point where we can say, man, look how good I am. Discipleship is for His glory. And discipleship is for other people also. Now, I'm going to kind of drop a big hammer on this in about two weeks. 
as we talk about the next step for our church, can I give you a preview to it? The next step for our church or any church ought to always be God's glory. And whatever this church decides to do or any church decides to do, they are not to be doing it for their own glory. It needs to be for His glory. And it needs to be not about ourselves, but about reaching other people. Now that having been said, I want us to evaluate by asking ourselves several questions. Whose life are we impacting? Ask yourself that question. Whose life am I impacting for Jesus? So to answer that, we're going to look at several other questions. Number one is this. How am I trying to impact the lives of others? What's your approach? What's your attitude as you try to impact the life of someone else? He says, you who are trying to be justified by the law have been alienated from Christ. You have fallen away from grace. We just talked about legalistic people trying to impact our lives. What I'm trying to ask you right now is this. Are you trying to impact somebody else's life by legalism? Are you trying to impact the life of somebody else by saying you have to live up to the law? You have to obey the law. You see, this seems like it's pretty serious to me because Paul writes and he says, you who are trying to be justified by the law have been alienated from Christ. You've fallen away from grace. Now, I need to stop and cap out on that phrase, fallen away from grace, because people get all kinds of twisted about it. That does not mean you're losing your salvation. According to the Bible, it is impossible for you to lose your salvation. That is not what it means when it says fall away from grace. Grace is not salvation. Grace is the means to salvation. What Paul is saying is this. These people have turned away from the very pathway that would get them to salvation. Instead of walking a pathway of God's grace, they're trying to walk a pathway of the law. They've turned off the very pathway that would lead them to salvation. That's what he means when he says they've fallen away from grace. You can't lose your salvation, but they quit walking the path of grace and started depending upon the law. It's really like this. If you're out at sea and you fall overboard off of an ocean liner and you're out there and the waves are all over you and you're about to drown and people on the boat throw you a lifesaver, Instead of you grabbing hold of it, you just kind of throw it aside like, I don't need that. See, God has a lifesaver, and it's Jesus. It's His grace. But people who want to depend upon the law, it's like they're taking His grace and throwing it aside, and they're drowning in their sin because they're throwing away the very thing that can help them be saved. They need God's unmerited favor. They need God's grace to help them be saved. Paul's not talking about losing salvation at all. And then to show you what works, in our life is faith. You can't work your way. You can't be justified by the law. Look at the next verse. It's like Paul gives us uh, you know, uh, just a, a, a picture of the whole thing having to do with the gospel in one verse. He says, back up please. Back up. He says, but by faith we eagerly await through the Spirit the righteousness for what we hope. Obeying the law doesn't work. You can't be justified by the law. But by faith, faith in Jesus, we can be saved. By eagerly awaiting, not working, but by waiting, by trusting upon Him through the Spirit, the righteousness for which we hope. And the word hope doesn't mean, well, I hope it happens. It means we have a confident expectation. Obeying the law will not give anyone a confident expectation because you're always wondering, have I done enough? Did I do enough yesterday? Will I do enough tomorrow? What He's telling us will work is this. Faith 
as we eagerly await what the Holy Spirit has done in our lives until ultimately we see Jesus face to face. That's what he's saying. How are you trying to impact somebody else's life? Are you trying to impact somebody else's life by legalism? Because that doesn't work. What works is faith, and we need to be impacting the lives of others by faith, not by legalism. He said we need to, by faith, eagerly await through the Spirit the righteousness for which we hope. And then in verse 6, he said, For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision has any value. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. Um, I'm going to make a statement that may shock some of you. And you need to listen to it closely before you say, No, that's not right. Jesus Christ cannot save anyone who is still trying to save themselves. Now you think about that. If you're trying to save yourself, you're dependent upon your works, your goodness, your ability to obey the law. Jesus Christ cannot save anyone who is still trying to save themselves. That being true, how dare we trying to impact the lives of others by legalism? How dare we trying to disciple someone by giving them a lot of man-made rules? You see, the Bible tells us there's a way that seems right to a man in Proverbs, but it ends in death. It leads to death. It just seems right to people they ought to have to work their way to heaven. It just seems right they ought to have to do something in order to be saved. But the Bible says even though it seems right unto a man in Proverbs, it tells us that the end of it leads in death. Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. He didn't say, I'm a way. I'm one of the ways. He said, I'm the way, the exclusive way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So what we need to do if we're going to disciple somebody else is tell them about Jesus, guys. I know it went a long way around, but I, I, you know, I needed to develop that. You need to hear that the only way you ought to discipleship someone is telling them about Jesus, not giving them a bunch of man-made rules. Second main question here is this. Next one. Am I willing to impact the lives of those who have fallen? If we're going to be involved in discipling other people, you need to ask yourself this question. Are you willing to discipleship someone who's messed up their life? Are you willing to disciple someone who has fallen, a sinner? It says there in Galatians 6, 1, Brothers, if someone is caught in a sin, you who are spiritual should restore him gently. And then he warns us, be careful though, watch yourself so you don't fall into temptation. Here's the picture that's being given. A brother or a sister in Christ has fallen. It's not debatable. They're caught in a sin. They can't make an excuse. They're caught red-handed. Then what are we supposed to be willing to do in our lives? Are you and I supposed to be willing to discipleship them, or are we going to treat them like a lot of people get treated when they fall, or are we going to act like, you know what, they've messed up. I, I, you know, they've dirtied their life up. They made this mistake. I'm just not going to do anything to help them out. What are we told to do? It says, brothers, if someone is caught in a sin, notice what it says. You who are spiritual should restore him. He's telling us it's the spiritual thing. It's the right thing to do. When someone falls, instead of us judging them, instead of us kicking them while they're down, instead of us being all negative and saying, I'm done with you, he's telling us when someone falls, we still need to be willing to disciple them. 
We still need to be willing to help them, even though they have fallen. And he says we're to restore them gently. Look what the word restore means. The word restore in the Greek means to set a broken bone. It means to mend a net. It meant to repair a ship that had been on a bad voyage, on a dangerous voyage, and received damage. In other words, you and I, when someone else falls, are still supposed to be willing to disciple them instead of act like we have written them off. If someone else falls, I need to be willing to set the bone to help the person so they can walk again for Jesus, so they can still serve Jesus. If someone has fallen, I need to be willing to mend the net. You see, another brother or sister in Christ, one thing they're supposed to do that you are supposed to do and I'm supposed to do, and that's lead other people to Jesus. If I've got a big hole in my net, the fish are getting away. You understand what I'm saying? We have to help people mend their nets when they have holes in their life because of sin in their life so God can use them once again to draw people to himself. If someone's been on a bad journey in life, how many of you can relate to that? Sin can beat you up, can't it? If you've been on a bad voyage in life and you've just been beaten up by sin, what we need to do is be willing to help repair someone's life after they've had a bad voyage, but instead of doing this, you know what the church tends to do? You messed up. We're going to leave you in the harbor. What we need to do is prepare the person's life so they can go back out to sea for Jesus. So they can keep going on the journey instead of just leaving them beat up, keeping them off in the harbor because they've been on this bad voyage in their life. You see, that's what Jesus loves to do, guys. He loves to take broken stuff, torn stuff, wounded stuff, damaged stuff, and he loves to fix it up and use it for his glory. So how can we take the attitude as Christians, well, you know what, I may disciple somebody, but I'm not going to disciple this person over here. Look what they did. Look at the sin they have in their life. Send me a good person. I'll disciple a good person, but I'm not going to disciple this person. Can I ask you a question? Why is it the church is the only organization in the world that shoots its dead? Or shoots its wounded, rather. Shoots its dead. We do that, too. Honestly, someone falls as a Christian. And you know what happens in typically many times in church? While they're down, they get shot and kicked and beat up and abused when what God tells us to do is restore them gently. So what are you willing to do in your life? We're talking about you letting Jesus use your life to discipleship someone. Are you willing to discipleship those people who have fallen? Next question. Whose burdens am I carrying? Because see, Galatians 6.2 tells us this. Carry each other's burdens, and in this way fulfill the law of Christ. So if I'm going to discipleship someone, if I'm going to be in a relationship with someone that I'm trying to teach them things about Jesus, along with that, I need to be willing to carry their burdens. Discipleship, so, discipling someone involves in having a relationship, being close to somebody. If I'm not close to somebody, I don't know what their burdens are. But if I'm developing a relationship with someone, drawing close to them, I can find out where their hurts are, what's going on in their life, and I can help carry their burdens. And you might be thinking to yourself, well, why should I do that? Here's a good reason. Jesus carried your burdens to the cross. 
He carried all of your sin, all of your burdens as our burden carrier. He went to the cross and nailed our burdens to the cross and paid for them. So I'm thinking it would be a pretty good model for us to follow as Christians that when other people fall, we are willing to carry their burdens. We're willing to help them in their point of need. We need to carry each other's burdens and that way fulfill the law of Christ. What was the law of Christ? Love each other as I've loved you. And if we love someone else, we will be carrying their burdens. Next question is this. We think about discipling other people. What is my attitude in impacting the lives of others? What is my attitude in impacting the lives of others? Paul writes in Galatians 6, If anyone thinks he's something when he's nothing, he deceives himself. Each one should test his own actions. Then he can take pride in himself without comparing himself to someone else, for each one should carry his own load. There's a big temptation when you're discipling somebody else and you've taken on the role for God to use your life and you're trying to help somebody else in their life. Because we're stinking human beings and we have this thing called pride, there's a big temptation as we are trying to disciple someone else that we start thinking this. Look who I am and look who they are. Look what I know and look what they don't know. Look how great I am as super Christian coming into their life to disciple them and look where they are in their lowly state as a new believer. He tells us we need to guard against that kind of attitude because if we think like that, anyone who thinks he's something when he's nothing, guys, here's the deal. You and I, without Jesus Christ, are nothing. And it's wrong for us to think, oh, I'm discipling someone else now, so look how big and look how grand I am. He says we ought to test our own actions. You need to look in the mirror a little bit. You need to get a little bit of humility in your life. Then maybe you can take pride in yourself because you're not comparing yourself to other people, and we do that all the time. Here I am, big Christian, look at little Christian. If you want to compare yourself to somebody... Compare yourself to Jesus Christ, and that will give you a dose of humility. If you want to compare yourself with someone, you need to make that comparison with Jesus. And then it says, for each one of us, you carry his own load. Oh, well, we thought the Bible just told us to carry the load of someone else. That's not what it's talking about here. I need to honestly carry my junk and admit that I'm imperfect, that I'm screwed up, and you need to do the same. And if we'll do that, it will guard us against having the attitude of, look how great I am as I disciple someone else. Last question. What am I doing with the biblical instruction I receive? If someone is discipling me, what am I doing with it? If I'm discipling someone else, what are they doing with it? The Bible that they're being taught, the word that someone's teaching me, what's my response to it? He said, anyone who receives instruction in the word must share all good things with his instructor. Now, there's differences of opinion about what all that means. I'll give you kind of three of them. It probably does mean this. It means financial support or giving because Paul's talking about if someone such as Paul was investing into your life, you ought to financially support him. You ought to financially support the person that is teaching you the Word. Now, I'm not going to hang out there because if I hang out there, somebody's going to think, yeah, the preacher's wanting to raise. 
I want you to look at the next response. Anyone who receives instruction in the Word must share good things with his instructor. Reciprocal discipleship. That means this. That means as I'm discipling somebody else, guess what? No matter how many years I've been a Christian and how new they are to Christianity, I can learn something from them too. Don't ever get to the point that you think you are beyond learning. We never ever arrive, guys, as being full disciples while we're in this life. We always have room for improvement. We all, have, we all have room for someone else to disciple us. As a matter of fact, no matter how long you've been a Christian, you ought to have somebody in your life that's helping to disciple you. And if you're this Christian and you are discipling someone that's not been a Christian very long, instead of looking down upon them and thinking you're the only one giving to them, you need to understand something. They can give something to you. I've learned things from new believers that haven't been a believer for a week. The last part of it is Thanksgiving. I ought to be so thankful, and you ought to be so thankful that somebody else is investing in my life, investing in your life, that someone is teaching you the Word of God, and you ought to be so thankful that they are doing that. What happens if we don't give out? And we just soak in what people give and teach us. Have you ever heard of the Dead Sea? You know why the Dead Sea's dead? The Dead Sea is dead because it only receives into its body of water and it never gives out. And it is a stagnant body of water. And that's the way our lives get when we think about discipleship. If all we do is soak in, soak in, soak in, and we never, ever turn around and let God use our lives to disciple someone else. What is the next step of His life in your life? Let's pray. Father, Lord, right now, we pray that you just speak to our hearts about this thing called discipleship. Lord, if we've, not been, if we've not been allowing someone to disciple us as we should, God, forgive us. Lord, I pray that you'd guard us against being influenced or our lives being impacted by legalism. God, guard us against allowing ourselves to, to live the wrong kind of life, to live the life that, that Satan would like for us to live based on sinful indulgences. God, help us guard against our lives being a base of operations for him to work god instead help our lives to be a base of operation for you to work through our lives god we pray that your grace would be a springboard that we can move forward in our lives for you so father this morning i i, I pray god that we'll all honestly evaluate what the biggest influence is in our own lives. What are we allowing to influence? Who are we allowing to influence our lives? But Father, also ask us and challenge us right now concerning who we are discipling. Whose life are we impacting for Jesus? For it's in Christ's name I pray. Amen. Before the band plays, uh, I want to 
want to talk to you just a second before we actually do the invitation. Uh, I've, I didn't say anything about the first service. I've had a severe headache all day uh, today. I took some medicine this morning, but uh, it's not got any better uh, during the day. And I actually felt better in the first service than I have this service. And uh, I've kind of wrestled with that. So I, I just feel like I've not put my thoughts together as good as normal in the message. So I want to, just a moment before we do the invitation, uh, just challenge you to the two big thoughts. Who are you letting influence your life? What's the biggest impact in your life? If it's anything other than Jesus, you've made a mistake, and there's something wrong there, and you need to fix that. And I want to ask you, whose life are you impacting? Because that's the second part of discipleship. It's not just about you and I being learners and followers of Jesus so we can say we are. It's us doing it so we can be matured to the point that we can reach other people and disciple other people. The band's going to sing in just a moment. As they do, inside the updates, there's a little note in there that says the next step, note to God. We've been doing it all this series. That's why we have these two crosses hung on the back wall. And the notes that are pinned there are notes that people have put in the first two weeks of this series. We challenge you to write some things about family. We challenge you to write some things about your individual life. Here's the challenge today. If there is anything in your life that you have allowed to be an influence in your life more than Jesus, you need to apologize to God. If you're a Christian, if you already know Christ as your Savior, and you've been letting something other than Jesus influence your life, you need to apologize to God, write down whatever it is, and in just a minute as the band plays, pin it to the cross. Second part of the note today is this. Who right now are you discipling in your life? If there is someone, write the initial down. If there is not someone that you're discipling right now for Christ, during the time the band plays, will you pray and ask God to give you a name of someone that He wants you to disciple, and will you make a commitment today to write the initial of whoever that is on the paper and take it to the cross and pin it as a commitment to God that you're going to actually try and disciple somebody else for Jesus. There's a big tendency in a message like today for you to close your ears off and you think that's the pastor's job or that's a deacon's job. I'm telling you straight up front for your own benefit, God expects each and every Christian to be discipling somebody. And with my headache, I might not have communicated as thorough as it needs to be today, but I just want to be as honest as I could with you at the end of this service and tell you, you need to be discipling somebody. Will you think about that as the band plays in just a moment? I'll be here at the front. Adam is going to be here at the front to help. If you don't know Christ as your Savior, we'd love to share with you more about how to receive Christ. You have been listening to sermon audio from Day 3 Church. We invite you to join us for one of our worship services. For more information, visit day3church.com.